welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1972 film Solaris. So this is a Russian film, and it takes place in the future, and I believe it is Russia, right? Yeah. All right, and it, I, I, I'm assuming the so in this world the Soviet Union is still in place because this. Well, that's kind of a good thing about this film is it's certainly not a propaganda piece yeah. for communist yes. <laughs> ideology. You would not know it as a Russian film if you if you weren't aware of the uh, uh, the director and obviously the uh, credits and so forth being being in the Russian language. But yeah, it it, it, it is a Russian film, and you can I, tell by the length. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. And the, uh, the yes. snail's pace. We'll get into that later. <laughs> but it takes place in the future, and we uh, a couple of people are visiting the psychologist. His name is Chris Kelvin. Yep. And they are want him to go on a journey to head to this old space station. It, it's uh, positioned over this planet called Solaris, and Solaris is mostly oceanic. Yes. And a lot of people on the crew, they say, have been sort of acting strange and they have trouble communicating with it and because one of the guys who is visiting him is this pilot named henry burton mm-hmm. and he said he experienced strange things hallucinations i think and he recorded he says he went through a fog but yeah he i think he said he saw like a lush garden or something or yeah and a very large infant you know, yeah. a very large infant and so then, he turns on his uh, wing cameras or something thinking he's going to be filming all of this stuff and nothing shows yeah, on the it was film a briefing and everybody's looking at it and he says oh you're probably just hallucinating imagine he's very adamant yeah and so they sort of hire kelvin to go over there and see what exactly the case is yeah well we have to keep in mind uh, I guess there was a crew of originally uh, 80 or so in the space station. It's down to three. Yes. As far as I know. After this pilot come back, comes back, they're obviously alarmed at what he has to say, not only about his own experiences, but about the survivors. So they're sending Kelvin, a psychologist, because they think uh, all of these uh, uh, men are losing their minds. Uh, not surprisingly, according once we hear this this story that the pilot's telling, so that's why he's going. Yes, and we should also point out Kelvin had a wife named Hari, yep. and she committed suicide about ten years earlier. Yes, and as he makes he he lands on the planet. We should mention that Burton gives him some information, and then the film just goes on for five minutes of him driving a car. But that, or, that's yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, in uh, Tokyo, yeah. I'm not sure yeah, it just goes, it, it, yeah. why that. Why they did? I'll tell you why I think it is. Because I'm just going to go ahead and admit that I like these kind of long, lugubrious, uh, visual, visually stunning films. I'm thinking the the purpose behind well, that. Tarkovsky said he to get the idiots out of the theater who just be too bored yeah and leave. i think he's being cynical there because i think the other purpose is and this also plays into the that beginning portion of the film where he is visiting his dad right mm-hmm. his dad is apparently terminally ill so he's uh, deciding whether or not to go on this mission after he got this brief but he has decided he's going to go and he kind of realizes what he's going to leave behind Life on Earth with his family, um, his surviving family, that is. So it's a big, it's a big momentous decision for him. So 
as sometimes happens when when people are about to undergo a dramatic change or sometimes even people that are uh, know they're about to die um, they start kind of drinking in all the normal uh, day-to-day mundane ordinary things with a with a different point of view and they all of a sudden see how valuable and intrinsically uh, amazing it all is and so suddenly you're looking at traffic as if it's wow this is amazing you know it's kind well, of it's, he's not even seeing that he gets the little call and then burton cuts him off yeah because he relayed the important information and it just sticks with burton yeah for five minutes that's he's, true like, he's driving through this tokyo space and hear kind of weird sounds and then burton's daughter's behind him yeah and you just wander like okay all right let, uh, yeah okay I, we but got he's, it his attention is split between burton and 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 looking at the uh, scenery driving by too, yeah. so he's he's torn did, in these yeah, two ways. Five minutes of that, I'm just saying. It was a lot, and I mean, you know, I would re- recommend for anybody watching the film, uh, if you have the ability to, uh, if you don't have the patience for this, you know, because uh, there are portions of the film where this happens, and um, um, a couple of the portions. Uh, it, it, they use a piece of uh, music that is uh, conducted by Bach to kind of be the uh, accompaniment of these visual, careful visual presentations of uh, the beautiful aspects of mundane life, right? Um, and uh, I like them actually. I like those parts of the film. Um, but if you if if be forewarned, if you don't have the patience for that, and you want to get right down to the nitty gritty of this film and uh, what it's philosophically. Uh, exploring you can skip those parts <laughs> yes <laughs> but anyway so after that very long car drive he f- makes his landing on the space station yes and he's i believe he has notified like given notification that i'm going to be there but nobody greets him and then yeah. once he heads to the space station it's a complete mess yep everything's in disarray there are three there but he only meets two um a doctor snout and sartorius right and there was another one whose name was gabarian but it's revealed that gabarian has killed himself and both snout and sartorius are acting weird and Mm -hmm. strange and he realized they say that they're not the only ones here yeah he looks around he sees that large infant for a second and he sees all these strange like childlike drawings on the wall yes and he sees a video recording that gabarian has left yes and it's sort of very kind of strange rambling and cryptic yeah and then he starts to see a woman and then we find out the woman look is thinks she is hari his wife who committed suicide looks just like her and looks exactly like her yep and the free first meets her, he's terrified and sort of cons her into getting into this rocket ship mm-hmm. and sending her away. But then she comes, you know, the memory is right back. And you sort of realize that this planet is creating these vivid hallucinations and memories from the people who occupy there. Yeah. Now, they're not hallucinations. Like they make it they, physical. They, they, they actually, actually make a physical. So, apparently, this happened, as we find later in the film, when... Uh, He's discussing this with the, the two other doctors. Um, uh, the, the, the ocean on this planet Solaris is in some way or another conscience. Con- and they, mm-hmm. they refer to it actually as the brain of the planet at some point. Uh, 
but it also has some kind of telepathic abilities. So what it does apparently is it, and we don't know quite what the purpose is either, but it, it does this. It taps into the uh, minds of the uh, cosmonauts when they are sleeping. And in every case, it looks to be, although we're having to surmise this, because we don't learn too much about Sartorius's others, so to speak, and we don't learn too much about snouts. We just see little brief glimpses of them. Um, but apparently what they what this planet does, this ocean on this planet, this conscious entity on this planet, it's a, in a way kind of almost like a god. It creates replicas of people that the characters um, loved in their lives, apparently. And I think in every case, although, again, I'm kind of guessing here, is we don't know too, too much about Snout and Sartorius, um, but in every case, it's somebody whom the, uh, the character has some significant guilt or regret. So we see briefly a... a, a uh, 10 to 12 year old girl running around. This is one of the other two characters, yeah. uh, uh, person that they have some kind of a regret about. As you mentioned with Kelvin, he's got a, a, a very large regret with regard to his wife, Hari. So they dip into this mind. They find these people that are very important in the past. And it may be that, you know, they've repressed a lot of memories about these people that they have in some way or another wronged. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not still in there subconsciously, right? So they, they apparently tap into the subconscious of the humans and then create these replicas out of neutrinos <laughs> and then somehow or another into the ship. Now, for what purpose, we don't know. Is this a defense mechanism for this planet? Or is it trying to communicate through these means and, and not realizing what kind of an emotional toll it takes on the human beings that um, have been tapped in this way? We don't know. And we never really find out. No. Um, but that's the idea. Yeah, and it's, it, early on, Kelvin is he's afraid, he's terrified of this because when he sends her off on the rocket ship, but it has... It goes on. He's seems to be more or less somewhat okay with it. He mm -hmm. takes care of her like he took care of the wife. Like one time, eventually, he leaves her alone, and she freaks out. Her lock closes the door, but it's open. But she keeps banging on the door and rips and through it. Rips through it, and she has all these cuts on her arms. And he's going to take care of her, but the, like just he just steps out for a second to get the medical stuff, and her hands are okay. It's almost gone yeah. because you know she's not quite human, right? And eventually, Snout and Sartorius are telling her herself, you know, you're not hard, even though you feel that you are. Yeah. You're not. And, and at one point, she tries to kill herself by uh, drinking this liquid oxygen. Yeah, which is extremely cold. Yes. And, yeah. But it, she keeps coming back because she, you know, it's, she's not something you can kill. And eventually, through near the end, because there's a lot of debate on, you know, you know, is she human? Is she not? Should we have her here? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing between him and Sartorius? Mm -hmm. Eventually, Hari, he goes to sleep again. Mm -hmm. Hari left, and then she left a note, and then she wants the two... Uh, she wanted uh, Snout and Sartorius to destroy her. Mm -hmm. 
And then because it's more about like the, the one of the things they're talking about is brainwave patterns is the one of the things they feel that can help that change. Well, this. yeah, what they do is, again, they're kind of in the dark about why this is happening. They're not sure if it's because the uh, uh, planet Solaris is uh, uh, belligerent, right, or if it's doing self-defense or trying to do something else. So they figure, well, what we can do is instead of... a, a having it rely only on readings or soundings it takes from the subconscious mind during sleep we're going to we're going to use kelvin and uh take an encephalogram of his uh brain activity when he's conscious and awake and then somehow or another that might change the behavior sure enough it does they do this and then all of a sudden the apparitions stop uh which seems to indicate that um the sea named Solaris is uh, aware, maybe perhaps for the first time, that what it's doing is is harming the human beings. Again, we don't know. It's yeah. being left very much in the dark and open to interpretation, as I'm sure is intentional <laughs> mm -hmm. in this film. But yes, um, so when that happens, interestingly, that's when the uh, the uh, uh, replica of Hari decides to try to kill herself and it seems to be at that time you know the the, the conscious consciousness was growing i think over the course of the film that uh her mere presence was uh emotionally very trying for kelvin right but at that point it kind of comes to a peak and I, I th i'm thinking that um that replica realizes because she is a copy of hari interestingly enough uh, she's capable of loving Kelvin, right? Um, so because she is, she's willing to sacrifice her own existence for his well-being. It's kind of interesting because the um, the copy here is unlike a lot of uh, you know, kind of other movies or thought experiments that think about personal identity. Um, the copy here is not, as it were, uh, the originals are not taken from the actual person's memories, thoughts, emotional states, character traits, and so forth. Hari, she's nowhere around here. They're all derived from Kelvin. So in a way, she's a, a portrait of his view of her, right? So because that's the case, clearly that entity, even though she doesn't know who she is at first, she even says this, I don't really know who I am, don't know too much about myself, but I do know I love you, right? And then over six, uh, nights, as Kelvin sleeps and Solaris is able to extract more information, it seems like they feed more information into this replica, and she becomes more and more fully like the Hari that uh, Kelvin remembers and is able to behave more like her. But what's very interesting is all the while, I think, and this is one of the big themes here, this entity is a person, even though it's not a human being. And uh, I think the contrast between Kelvin and Sartorius, one of the interesting uh, aspects of the film is that their disagreement on that, on that interpretation and that really comes to the fore in that library scene, which is supposed to be a birthday party for, for uh, Snout, 
and then you have this uh, debate going on between all of the characters on whether or uh, over whether or not she is a person or a human being, as they sometimes put it. And it's interesting because Sartorius, you, you get the feeling that he's he's convinced she's just kind of like a robotic automaton without a mind or consciousness or emotions or anything like that. And he comes across as very cold when he talks to her and about her in front of her in that fashion. Whereas uh, Kelvin, uh, over the time period he's been there, uh, has come to see her as a person. Right, has fallen in love with her, even though he realizes it's not really Hari. Mm-hmm. Right, it is a replica of Hari, and then you have kind of in the middle of that that spectrum of how to what the proper way is to treat this uh, replica of Hari. In the middle is Snout, um, and he uh, sometimes vacillates between the two, and it gets very interesting toward the end of the film when she decides that she's going to uh, attempt to get rid of herself, right? I, I think you see uh, Snout falls, or comes over to the other side of uh, taking her as a full person and almost admiring her for this. Um, and she fails when she tries to drink the liquid uh, oxygen. Um, but then she asks very selflessly, if those two will use this device we here discussed, and of course there's no details discussed exactly how this thing works, uh, the Annihilator. Because they are convinced the Annihilator will actually destroy these replicas, these Neutronic replicas. And so she begs them to do that. And she's doing this clearly for Kelvin's benefit. Um, And apparently it works. So then he's left without Hari at this point. Uh, and th- this, this, this aspect of the film is also interesting. Um, so on the one hand, it's, talking, it, it's having us consider whether or not Hari is a person. I think the answer is yes. Okay. On the other hand, it's asking us from the point of view of Kelvin whether or not he should, in the moral sense of the word should, go back home, right? He's obviously got a pull to go back home, um, but he also knows that his father will not be there because he was terminally ill. He told him so. When, when, when you come back, I won't be here anymore, right? So it kind of leaves us toward the end of this film it's with that question, him asking himself this question. And then it uh, change of a scene. We see him back at his father's house with the dog. Um, we don't see the mother. We don't see the kids. Um, but we see the father. And he's in the kitchen. Oddly enough, it's leaking in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's got this water kind of falling on his back as he's working on something, maybe baking bread or something. I can't figure what it was. But what's really odd about it is he doesn't seem to even react to the water. So you know something's up. Yep. And then uh, you see Kelvin walk up to the house, and he looks in the window, and he sees his father, and there's a, a, a look of a, almost astonishment, but an expectant astonishment. It's like he expected this. And then the, the father comes out and greets him, and he hugs him, and then they pan back, uh, 
And we see only at this point. It's too bad it was 1972 special effects, yeah, by the way. It doesn't, look very good. it doesn't look very good, but it's still pretty kind of powerful, I think. We see only at this point that Kelvin has chosen to stay behind on Solaris. Because after they had uh, done the annihilation and sent his uh, conscious minds in grams down to the planet, the planet has decided, again, we don't know exactly why, create little islands within the ocean that will allow the human beings, if they choose to do so, to live on those islands and somehow or another deal with and come to terms with regrets in their earlier life because he's apparently got regrets about his dad too. So only then do we see he's chosen to do this. And that leaves you with that question at the end of the film. Was this the right choice? Should he have gone back? Doesn't he have obligations to go back? Uh, even if his father isn't there, maybe for other family members or in the, in the interest of the science, you know, because clearly the people sent him to uh, investigate this, come back and tell them the tale. Um, but he's chosen not to. Interesting, uh, yeah. you know, choice. And that's the end. Yep, and that's the end of the movie. And yeah, when we when we've done this show, we're almost pretty much in agreement. We've we've done films we both don't like very much. We've done <laughs> films that we most pretty much enjoy, but we've never had. I think it's the first time we've done a film where we're in opposites. Yes, I, it's interesting because this is Andre Tarkovsky, and his films are notoriously of this slow length. Yeah. Probably the film he did, the sci-fi film he did after this, uh, Stalker, mm-hmm. also famous same length but he particularly did this as a response in the uh, western world with the 2001 a space odyssey yeah he thought the film was extremely shallow because he felt kubrick was all about the technological invention i think he said mainly it was more about let's show off these amazing practical effects yeah with the space docking sequence and so on more so than telling the story and you know, because I just recently watched 2001. It's, it's, I still enjoy that movie a lot. Yeah. And I will say, two, uh, this movie makes 2001 look like a fast-paced action film as far <laughs> as its tone. I, 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 the, the film is just very... It, it's it, there's there's I, I like Terrence Malick films. I can sit through Tree of Life and I can still, for the most part, enjoy it. I may yeah. not entirely understand everything that goes on <laughs> in that movie, but I can, for the most part, enjoy it. Yeah. This was too slow for me. This was like the driving scene, but there are scenes particularly. I think there's one scene when it's looking over of a famous painting, Hunters in the Snow. Yeah. And remember that scene just, it's panning across and it's just going on too long. And the first 40 minutes with that scene when he's, when the father's visiting and that's just going on too long. They're just like, and like when you want some of the plot to go forward and then there's just like the scenes with the, dialogue at the party like i've said this it's it feel, a lot of times it feels too talky like if yeah like, it's a little forced i'll give you that yeah for and sure just, and like where i like 2001 where you know you go 25 minutes in the film before you get the first bit of dialogue yeah. because the first 25 minutes is the stuff with the primitive ape humans yeah so i i, I just i i it was too much for me i I don't yeah. like this. I, 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 now, I, I know it's considered an all-time classic, so you're on the right. I'm going to yeah. be the one one out of ten dentist. You're the <laughs> nine out of ten dentist. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think it, if, if you are prone to be impatient with this film, it probably would pay to watch it in installments. You know, maybe 30 minutes at a time, and then you'll get less impatient with it. 
Um, you know, and part of this is just Tarkovsky. I mean, it's the way he directs, right? Um, yeah, this but, isn't even his longest film. I think like Andre Rublev or Rublev was like three and a half. Three hours and a long. half hours long. Maybe we'll do that one now. No, no. But uh, I, I, I think it's just for me. It works for me. I can say because it it creates a mood and deals in a way not directly, but in a way that kind of puts me as a viewer. I don't know about you, but puts me in the shoes of Kelvin. And he's living with a tremendous guilt and regret because apparently in one of those very long scenes with the Bach music playing, um, we're back uh, We're back in an earlier part, period of his life where I think the cause of the wife's suicide is revealed to us. He had been carrying on some kind of affair with another woman. And uh, uh, Hari came to realize this and it was too much for her to bear. So she killed herself. And we are watching the repercussions of what he did and how terribly he feels about it for roughly two and a half hours of this film. Yes. And but it captures that mood and and it captures, I think, uh, um, at one and the same time, the almost the horror he feels that he sees Hari again. But at the same time, even though he knows it's not really her, his chance to make it up to her in some way, right? Mm-hmm. So he starts protecting her from the other two characters, especially Sartorius. Sartorius is relatively cold, and he's always talking about how scientific he is, and you can't let yourself be carried away with emotions here just because he look, she looks like your wife. That's not your wife. That's just a robot, essentially. That's what he's kind of telling him. And uh, Kelvin knows that isn't true. And there's no way he could take it to be true because that copy has been copied from his deepest regrets by the sea named Solaris. <laughs> and uh, it's not surprising at all that he feel, starts feeling very protective toward her. Now, what I don't get, though, is he's come to terms with this in a way. And... um Uh, the Hari replica has in a way given him an opportunity to leave or or find redemption, find redemption. You know, you kind of screwed up with the real Hari, but you can go home now. And if your dad is there, you can, you can reconcile with him in some way. You can reconcile with the kids in some way. Apparently those kids are his, Um, but he doesn't do it. And I don't know if that, this is one of the things that fascinates me about this film. I don't know if that is reflective of a deep and abiding and completely irreversible shame that he he holds about himself. He's so ashamed he can't go back and face what he's done, right? And you get hints that the other two guys are in that same boat too because if they had their druthers, they didn't want him to come visit, Right? Their reaction at first is, go away. Leave us alone. They want to stay in their quarters with whatever replicas they have. Yeah, we never you really know. see... We see just that brief little shot yeah. of the... Supposedly this four-foot-tall... Something. Or yeah. something. You don't even see it. But, and then that's, and that's then the other thing. Because you're like, well, where are their repressors? They don't want you to know. That's yeah. just it. I think they're so deeply ashamed that uh, they don't want to go back to Earth in a way. Right? They don't want to go back and face it. Right? 
And you're thinking all along, well, Kelvin's going to kind of rise above that, you know, and, and uh, face the music, so to speak, and go back. But he doesn't. He chooses to stay on, stay on Solaris with the replica of his dad. And I that's part of the reason I'm fascinated by this film. It, it's maybe he's wonders if because you say he's you know he has these regrets, but he's also you know wanting to redo things over again with Hari and trying to make things right, and even just remembering the good times he did have yeah. with her. I mean, it's almost like a bit of uh, playing off your nostalgia, your your need yeah. for nostalgia, and I guess. One of the things that uh, was bringing to my mind other pieces of media were specifically two episodes of The Twilight Zone, both dealing with that. And one was called The Last Stop at Willoughby. And it's this depressed like businessman. He's in a loveless marriage. He's got this job he can't stand where he's being pushed too hard. He's almost at the brink. But every day he takes the train going to and from work, one day he falls asleep. He gets off, and it's like this picturesque Tom Sawyer esque, like small town. It's called Willoughby, mm-hmm. and it's like you, you know, it's a place where you can just uh, you know lay back and just have a good time, and like you can go fishing and everything. Yeah. He doesn't want to. He's thinking about it, but he's he doesn't want to do it. But eventually, the stress of his job, his wife, is more and more distant from him. The third time, he says, "I'm gonna get off at Willoughby," and so he says he's there. And the kid's like, you want to go fishing with us? And everything, he's off there and he's happy. It's a wonderful time. Cut back. He jumped off the train Uh into his death. And they're taking it to him. And the big thing is, they say, he kept talking about Willoughby. What's Willoughby? And the thing that's taking him away is the Willoughby Funeral Home. Oh. And then there was another one that's similar to that. It was called Walking Distance. Yeah. And this one, it's a... Almost, it's kind of similar because, like, two of the when that happened, I was like, "Isn't this Willoughby?" It's the same story almost, mm-hmm. but this one, it's same kind of guy, depre- sad, overworked, uh, middle aged. He goes back to the town of his youth, and he's talking about, you know, yeah, it was just, you know, it was such great times with me as a child. I just want to go back there. He goes back, and it's exactly the way it was when he was a kid. He sees his mom and dad; they're his age. He sees himself as a kid, and he wants to stay back there. He wants to stay there. And he, but he's trying to talk to people. He's trying to talk to his parents about what he's going through. They are afraid of him. They say, you shouldn't be here. And eventually tries talking to himself as a child. The child gets scared. And when they have that little confrontation, the kid, his, his younger self, got into an accident and broke his leg. Mm-hmm. Then once that happens, he starts getting a limp. And the parents say, you know, you, you need to fix things out. You can't, it's dangerous to be stuck here. Like, you can't keep being stuck in the past you have to go on. You have to try to make things right in your time. Mm-hmm. So that's when he gets the lesson and he leaves. So it reminds me of those two episodes as yeah. far as now they both wish they could go back. Some of them don't quite have regrets. They're just looking to have a better life. But with Kelvin, he is trying to go back to what he had with Hari and maybe try things differently. Yeah, although he's lost Hari. Yeah. Right. And, and the, the in a way, the, the uh, Hari replica is... I'd say more morally mature than he is in that case. If he has really decided, and that's hard to argue with your conclusion, he has. If he's really decided to kind of take that nostalgic option instead of uh, going back home and kind of facing the music, so to speak, and, and dealing with the repercussions of his real dad, uh, either in, being close to the end of his life or already passed, and instead decides, I'm just going to live in this uh, kind of a simulated world. Um, where I can have, uh, as it were, the, the nicer parts of the the, uh, the replicant life. Uh, 
then I'd say he's made the, he's made the, the the morally wrong choice. But um, consider this: what does he do when he meets his his dad? Opens the door and uh, uh, he meets him. He seems a little bit. He seems almost sad. He almost breaks down, right? Yeah, yeah. And he uh, uh, embraces him. On his knees, he embraces him like he did with Hari earlier in the film. So he may be making the choice, and, and this is a, a strange choice, uh, granted that he knows it's not real, to not just live in a nostalgic past world. He's going to make the choice to try to, try to give recompense and right his wrongs to the replica dad. So he's not going to go back and just live the, an easy life, so to speak, and go fishing with the kids and so forth. He wants to somehow or another make up for the wrongs he's done, even though <laughs> he knows um, this, uh, this dad isn't really his dad. That's interesting. I don't know if in reality people would find satisfaction in that regard. And this brings up interesting questions, you know, with regard to um, uh, present technology and with regard to artificial intelligence. You know, there's, there's been talk of uh, people uh, making claims that you, if, if you know enough about a, a, a person in, in, in your life, um, you'd theoretically at least be able to create an AI version of that person, and in, including, you know, voice technology that makes it sound like that person. Right. And uh, some people that thought about possible psychotherapeutic uses of such technology where you could you could carry on conversations kind of what's the chat GPI? What is this thing now? I forget. Um, but anyway, you could carry on conversations uh, with the AI. And because it's very realistic and looks like the person, you might be able to use it as some kind of a psychotherapeutic tool tool. Um, I don't know how plausible that is with modern technology but the film has us consider what how plausible it might be with the kind of advanced technology and advanced intelligence that the sea named solaris apparently has because it's able to build out that character of hari only from kelvin's memories right but to the point where she's as far as he's concerned indistinguishable from hari and as at least with regard to uh, Snauk, indistinguishable from a genuine person. This is a real person we're dealing with. I don't think Sartorius ever thinks so. Uh, so he's willing to agree to use the Annihilator on her, much more so than Snout is. Um, but if you get to that point uh, with technology, um, uh, this film seems to be asking us, um, at what point do you consider these creations persons and i think that's another aspect of this thing that kind of fascinates me and we should point out that this uh is based on a polish novel by stanislav lem and it's interesting because about 35 or so years later there was an american remake directed by uh, steven soderbergh um i believe i haven't seen it but I know the, one of the criticisms from people who liked the original, who didn't like the remake, was that it focused too much on that, the romance between mm 
yeah. Kelvin and Hari. And George Clooney, I believe, played Kelvin in that one. Yes. But I know um, Lem, who was still alive when the remake came out, is dissatisfied with both. I know yeah. Tarkovsky said that his defense was, well, he doesn't really understand movies. He just literally wanted a shot-for-shot adaptation. Like, every scene is absolutely 100% yes. identical. Yes. So I know Lem said he wanted... He kind of explained some of the more mysterious things about Solaris from the in the book that we kind of don't really get yeah. in the movie from a technological yeah. angle. Yeah, but that's kind of why I like the film. It, it leaves it, it leaves a, a lot of that unexplained, including the ultimate purpose that Solaris has in doing this. Right, and in that way, I like it because it's like two thousand and one. Two thousand and one leaves it a little ambiguous as to what exactly this alien. Uh, uh, civilization uh, is doing with these obelisks and why is it so interested in humanity and guiding humanity over thousands and thousands of years to to meet it right and and apparently take humanity to the next step in evolution what post-humanity whatever the heck it is uh, floating baby in space stage yeah. of life you know it's still but not as talky as this movie yeah but that's what i like about both films they're a little bit uh, like rorschach inkblots and they let you read into that ambiguity uh, in more than one way. And I think it's kind of, that's what draws me to these abstract films, including Malick, by the way. They're, mm-hmm. they're not real clear-cut uh, explorations of specific I, philosophical yeah. topics. They're mood pieces that in some way or another uh, 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 bring forth uh, the the philosophical topics, but not in a way that's just explicit and boring, like uh, reading a, a a piece of prose written by a philosopher. In a way, and mm-hmm. they very they do a very good job of invoking moods. And the mood for this I, this one film, I think, is regret. I I, I agree. I mean, like I said, I, I like most of Malick's films. I mean, I love Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, but there's some point you do have to just. Stop being so slow. Just, you know, get the plot going a little bit, please. Well, you know, it, this it highlights really at least that highlights the difference between American and then Soviet cinema. Because yes, yes. Tarkovsky was more, even though interestingly, Tarkovsky clashed a lot with Soviet censorship. Yeah, and he, I think, some of the times his films were even banned. Yes, but um, it still it's like when you think of Soviet cinema, and even like uh, people talk about cartoons in Soviet mm-hmm. or animated films in Soviet, we're very abstract, kind of avant-garde. Yeah. In 2001, which even people here think is a little bit too abstract and avant-garde, it's still like that's it, it, it's it's concrete comparatively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's concrete comparatively, <laughs> which even though interestingly, Tarkovsky, yeah, he said he wasn't a big fan of 2001, but interesting, one of the films he did like, which I think came out just before he passed, was the first Terminator film. <laughs> No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. That is hilarious. But let's, I think that what you're saying is uh, just reinforces for me what might have been a, a better option for this film. Uh, and maybe it would be an option that somebody could take now in the, um, in the era of uh, uh, Netflix and uh, Hulu television and all of these uh, subscription services. Um there are a great many uh, series in place that kind of do the same kind of exploration of, uh, as it were, moods and tell slow, lugubrious stories that kind of leave you hanging sometimes between episodes. Um, this film, in a way, is kind of episodic like that, and it, it pays to watch it in several sittings. 
one sitting being the initial meetings, for instance, and uh, the the the, the uh, uh, episodes at the father's house, maybe being the next one, and so forth. Um, that way, you you don't try your patience too much with yes. this thing. And when 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 those do, long lingering scenes come, and when they're panning over the artwork and 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 panning over nature, or you're taking that drive, hey, if that's only you know, one fifth of the one episode you're watching, you'll tolerate it. Yeah. Right. And that might be the best way to deal with this thing. If Tarkovsky is still alive, I'd say, hey, make a mini series out of it. Don't try and do it all in one sitting. I will say the same day I watched this, I also went in the theaters to see the Super Mario Brothers movie. And that, <laughs> talk about two different contrasts. They could. They, that's that's quite an experience in one day. Oh my goodness! That. Yeah, that's jarring. Are you gonna you're gonna get whiplash from that? All right, it's getting close to the end of my questions here. Anything else you want to bring up before we start signing off? Um, no, I just kind of uh, regret we didn't have time to watch the uh, the remake. I'm kind of curious to see how that went. And uh, confession time, I've not read the St- Stanislav Lim novel. I want to read that too and see. Uh, what the basis of his gripes were with the uh, 1972 film. Hey, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale, but you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast and might be interested in my other podcast, Wheel Sounds, reach up a set dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at sanacinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.